Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and today's episode is coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and Boon Wurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Today, I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Advisory Committee. Um, the committee provide information to the association on all matters related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and contribute strategic advice and knowledge to the development of Speech Pathology Australia's Reconciliation Action Plan. As it currently stands, there may be up to 20 members, including four Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members of the association, so speech pathologists, two early career Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander association members, two Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders in health or academia, and two two representatives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations, two Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander consumers, and one Aboriginal member of Speech Pathology Australia staff. So we spoke a lot today about cultural safety and what that means and what are some easy ways to implement this from today to ensure that everyone and everyone who walks through our doors have the same excellent quality of services that everyone has the right to. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Um, so we are now joined by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Advisory Committee. Um, and so we were just going to have a bit of a conversation about um, cultural safety in speech pathology practice and what that looks like and how can we ensure that we're doing that every single day. Um, Tara, would you like to start us out? Sure. Um, thank you, Nadia. I'm Tara Lewis. Um, I'm an Inman woman. I um, am lucky enough to live and work on the lands of the Yagra and the Turrbal people um, and my country is Inman country, um, which is in the west of Queensland um, in the Turum area. Um, so I guess cultural safety uh, for me is around ensuring that, um, you know, obviously speech pathology services um, are safe for mob. Um, you know, I work in paediatrics, so it's about ensuring that um, the services that we provide um, support uh, and advocate for the use of home language. Mm. Um, and I guess the, uh, the I guess the, what I'm trying to say is I guess that the um, tools that we have and the ways in which we um, have been, I guess, um, educated through university with the Western lens of, of what language should be, uh, it doesn't necessarily um, see the strengths of, mm. of um, community and, and the languages that we use within communities. So for us as clinicians, I think it's about advocating for the rights of um, communication rights for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, and, you know, for me, that's, you know, looking at the ways in which um, kids are talking and families are talking because, you know, the ways in which we yarn is really important and valuable in um, the sense of belonging for, for mob as well. Hi, my name is Eddie Ong. I'm um, a Torres Strait Islander man um, living in Bachelor Country in Harvey Bay in Queensland, uh, and I'm a member of the African Torres Strait Islander Advisory Committee. Um, cultural safety is, is a very broad um, subject, and I guess for me, Part of it is looking in terms of the service that's provided from a client coming into a service. Um, can I see that I'm 
welcome and um, being part of being part of that service can see yourself reflected, you know, when I walk, walk through your door. Um, it's also for me around having an understanding um, of the history and the culture of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and that recognition too, I guess, that, um, you know, some people, uh, then they may be a bit nervous about attending a service or a, um, or a place or a hospital because of, of um, some historical factors um, that might have played out within their um, families. So it's, it's recognising that there may be some some of those issues around being tentative with, with those services. Um, and I guess having recognising that and then what, what impact that might have. Um, so, you know, there may be times when people don't turn up for a service or they don't give um, feedback or whatever, but that's not making assumptions around the fact that they don't want the service. Yeah. Um, but it might be, might be other factors. So I guess, you know, for me, one of the things is recognising and understanding the, the culture and history um, that people bring with them. And, um, you know, when I, when I walk into that place, um, well, I'd welcome to the event. My name is Shari. I'm a general from Northern Queensland, um, living and working on Larrakee country in Darwin. Um, I think cultural safety to me, when I think of it, I think a lot about listening and learning. I think um, generally, um, you know, as clinicians, we have a set idea of what we think might um, help the client or the person that we're working with um, and I think really taking a lot of steps back and just kind of sitting and being present and learning from um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is probably yeah one of the first steps because I think um, you know our job is to empower people and work on things that they want to work on and help them um, or support them to live their best lives um, so, yeah, I feel like a lot of times, yeah, we're taught, like Tara said, when you're at university, if this person has this impairment, this is what you work on um, to ensure that they're able to do this, um, yeah, task or whatever. Whereas I think that, you know, for a lot of people, what's important to them might not be what is determined in a textbook. What's important to them is, yeah, yarning with their families, using their home language, using um, gestures, communicate this, that, the other. I think, yeah, people's... Um, goals and what they want to work on you need to listen to the person and be responsive to what their wants and needs are and yeah I think we talk a lot but there needs to be a lot of listening and learning than talking mm -hmm. yeah um, my name is Tanya and I'm a bunch long woman and I live over on Noongar country in Perth um and I'm on the committee as a community member and I guess to me, when when we receive services for them to be culturally appropriate, they have to understand the way that our family communicate and and support that. And like I'm sort of saying, you know, like it needs to be, we need to feel um, safe and reflected in it, and um, and I guess just feel that people uh, understand. Us are going to take the time to understand us for you know whatever that might um, mean. And like Sharon was saying about goals, that you know our goals might be um, not necessarily what the you know species goals may be, um, but they're relevant to us. And really, if you want to work together, which is sort of 
means often sitting back and listening, get, getting to know people before you start kind of working with them, jumping down, because it's one thing we find about a lot of, you know, Western services that they're straight to business, you know, like especially with you know, NDIS maybe and how that kind of model set up. Funding, there's not a lot of time for building relationships and, um, and it, you know, if you wanted to take the time to build a relationship for you, or your planner. <laughs> so it's sort of how you, but how you can do, how you can start working with people um, in the limited kind of, you know, financial constraints, I guess, that we have. But I think it's possible. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Can I ask a quick follow-up to that? Yeah. I, I think that that's a, a really interesting thing that I know a lot of people have a tricky time figuring out how to how to quickly build relationships in a way that feels meaningful. Are there any thoughts that you all have on on that that we could use to advise people? Again, no is an okay answer. I was just <laughs> reflecting on what you were saying there, Tammy. I think for me, I think that concept of like we're too busy, there's not enough time. Mm -hmm. I think that is just, yeah, the whole like Tanya said, probably the Western service yeah. way of setting it up. And it's, yeah, it's, I think to be culturally safe and response, you need to rethink the way you even think about mm -hmm. providing a service. Um, yeah. Anyone else has something? I think we just need to look at the ways in which we conduct our services yeah. as well. Um, you know, Having a yarn, sitting in a clinical setting isn't necessarily conducive to having a yarn either. Um, so um, go outside, relax a little bit, um, be genuine um, with who you are. Sometimes you don't need to have that facade of being the speech therapist and being the expert uh, because we're not. Yeah. Uh, the clients are, the families that come to us, they're the experts um, on what their needs and their communication needs are. So I think be genuine, offer some stories um, of yourself um, and be in that yarn and sit in the yarn. Uh, it might only take, you know, 10 minutes or something, you know, you sit down and have a yarn with your with the families that come in. Um, it doesn't just have to be with the child or with the adult that's coming in either. It could be with the entire family and have a yarn in the waiting room or outside. Um, but, yeah, offer those stories of who you are, where you've come from, um, who your people are because uh, we all have those stories, whether you're Indigenous or not, um, of where you where you come from and where you belong. Uh, so I think sharing that is really important to building those relationships and then, um, you know, creating that sense of safety within services. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is really important, isn't it, that yeah. relationship building and around how, how much time you want to afford it. Um, but you know, when what people might find interesting is, you know, when we introduced ourselves before, we didn't actually talk about our professional background. We talked about mm. who we were as, as um, individuals and where we sort of come from. And I guess, despite the fact that we've got a whole lot of different mm. tribes yes. around mm. and different models around Australia, that's one common commonality, I guess, across all models um, is around how we we. Because it was that relationship, I guess, when you're moving across country yeah. and who you are, who you're connected to and how you're connected. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's really those connections, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I guess you can do a lot of work um, <coughs> and a lot of relationship building while you are working mm. as well. It's kind of, um, it's just, I guess, you know, investing in that stuff. Because I think if you do invest in it in the beginning, it's probably going to, it's going to make the work, you know, quicker anyway. And you can get stuff done but I think you know if we don't put the time in um, at the start 
it just makes it really difficult. Yeah. So and a more meaningful connection throughout that process as well. So yeah. it's less about trying to, you know, uh, work an agenda that's not meaningful to those people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. My name's Jess. I'm a Wiradjuri Womble woman living on Ngunnawal country in Canberra. And my, my practice background is actually social work, but there's a lot of connections between speech path and social work. Um, and for me, culturally safe practice really links to both individual professionals or practitioners and the associations, the disciplines as a whole, understanding it is their responsibility to create culturally safe practice. Uh, I, I think a lot of the time this idea of cultural safety and cultural responsiveness falls back on the Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander service user or family. It falls back on that um, uh, culturally and linguistically diverse community when it's actually the role, particularly of non-Indigenous and white practitioners, to ensure that cultural safety. And we see this in social work a lot. Uh, and what I think also happens is it becomes really individualised as opposed to making it core business of professional ethics and practice standards. <clears throat> the conversation before around, you know, oh, there's no time to do that extra work. Even, you know, a, a lot of practitioners pitch it as extra work when it's not. It should be the core of your work. There's no way you can embody and live the core values of our professions if your work isn't culturally safe. Um, so for me, it's really about it being core business to every single practitioner and the industry bodies as a whole to ensure that safety for our service users and for each other. I really agree with you. I think that um, providing a safe space for anyone and everyone that walks through your doors is is an ethical act and should be a foundation of what everyone is doing at that very first, first stage in early days. Yeah. Uh yeah, I, I'm Rachel, a Wiradjuri woman from Dubbo in New South Wales. Um, cultural safety in practice, I guess, for me is um, respecting one's culture, um, building those relationships and having those trusting relationships um, and really prioritising the needs and aspirations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, families and communities that access those services um, and I think that's where you're going to get, you know, really improve the outcomes um, in speech is having those relationships and, um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering, if, well, if you would be interested in having a quick conversation about some like, good practice standards that you've seen that people might be able to reflect on as well. Mm -hmm. It'd be also good to hear things that you know that you've learned that you would like other people to know and to learn from as well. I guess most of them, and um, with no, no, you know, disrespect to the species that, that we've had, but most of them have been um, not being sort of culturally safe. It's not really, I don't imagine that anything much changes you know from from one sort of you know client to the next um i don't think it's really ever been taken into account we might communicate in a different way or that um we might not need and i often think you know like the the takes two to talk and i talk about it a lot because it was it was really quite a traumatic experience so i never talked so much in my life and it was so it was such a bizarre mm. Thing to you know be doing and um 
but it was standard, you know, back then everyone kind of did it. You had to go and do this um, kind of thing. And I think it really, really impacted how I felt about speech pathology for, you know, really until I joined this group. And I think part of the reason why I joined this group was because I thought, you know, um, it surprised me that they had um, like such a, a group and yet they had practice like that, you know, like mm-hmm. it was, it just sort of seemed like quite a bizarre thing. So I think that was probably one example of like really shocking practice. But I think people need to understand as well that people, everyone brings their own stuff to stuff and people that are not um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, they still have a culture and they're still bringing their culture and sort of practising from their cultural perspective as well, which isn't always in align with their clients' stuff. So I guess then it would be really good. And I think the best practitioners for any kind of anything that I've seen are people who are really aware of what they're actually bringing as well. And, um, yeah, so that takes to talk and it needs to be. That's a really good point, I think, Tanya, as you um, were talking there about this, the therapist also needs to know what they're bringing mm. as well to the session because you have your own biases and whether or not you, you know, um, understand or are aware of your own biases, you do actually have them. Um, and we talk about anti-racism as well. You're either racist or you're an anti-racist. Um, and I think that's really important to think about as well because you can be on this continuum um, of, you know, of how you view people. Um, in one moment you might be racist and the next moment you might be an anti-racist where you're standing up and you're speaking out Um, and we can all have these biases as well so it's important to understand where you're situated and what you're bringing to the table and how you're viewing people so I think um, creating culturally safe and responsive places for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, I think is really important like Eddie was saying is you have to understand the history um, understand the impact that you know, elders have had um, on supporting um, Aboriginal people with you know providing opportunities because it's actually been Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have had to fight and resist the systems of operation in this place um, in order to ensure that services are safe for us. Um, you know, some people don't want to go into a clinic, they don't want to go to a hospital because of these assumed biases about us. So it's really important that we understand that as clinicians. It's also really important, I think, that we understand how we've been disciplined by our discipline to see different types of people as well. And so when we are at a university level where a student, we're going in and we're learning about who we are from the Western system. Um, And so they're teaching us of how we are seen and that's through the eyes of deficits and problems. Um, You know, and as Arnie Rosalie said, you know, we are not... The problem. Um, so I think it's really important for clinicians when they are seeing families and communities walking through the door, um, not to see us as a problem and not to see us as a set of deficits, um, but to see us of, of all the strengths that we have as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the resistance, the fights, um, you know, everything that our elders and our ancestors have had to fight for to give us these opportunities. Um, and if you can see those strengths, and incorporate that within, you know, our, our clinical setting down to, you know, our therapy goals, um, making sure that the clients are actually um, are defining those goals. Um, and then the research around that as well. Like we, we're talking about evidence-based practice, but 
the evidence that we're actually reading about us, is that actually true? Who's written it? Um, who's been responsible for that research? And how is that informing our evidence base? Um, because it's probably mostly inaccurate because yeah. it hasn't been written by us or um, hasn't been involved yeah, from us from the very beginning. Can I just add something in on that, just while there was a lull? Um, I think it's also about non-Indigenous practitioners being able to take accountability for their actions <laughs> and being called out, you know, not perceiving being called out as being attacked or bullied, that it's accountability in practice. Um, I've seen that a lot in social work when we when we call social workers out for poor practice or, you know, racist practice. It's, oh, but I'm a social worker, I'm a good person, I'm not racist. And it's like, well, that's incorrect because you are because you've just shown this practice. Um, and it's that modelling of that accountability I think is really powerful, particularly within organisations. If you've got people on the team owning their mistakes and showing that growth from that, the impact that has is huge. And I think that's a way that we can see how it's happening in practice. You know, it's not just the absence of stuffing up, but it's owning the accountability around that too. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's what you were saying as well, Tara, isn't it? It's the idea of the, um, and what you were saying, Tanya, the, the self-awareness being mm -hmm. such a key part of all of this and, and knowing your background and also knowing that we are human and we are going to make mistakes and it's that's okay so long as we own them and we move mm -hmm. forward and we're respectful and um, collaborative about all of that. Yep. We had an example of that today around that lack of self-awareness with um, one of our members here, who was at the baby clinic and um, talking about you know, um, how mothers with babies, mothers who are Aboriginal who have babies are, you know, can, can get a, a free vaccination, whereas non-Indigenous people might have to pay for it. Um, and the comment, that's right, my comment, um, was, you know, oh, aren't you lucky that you're, you're Aboriginal because you get a lot of free stuff? Um, <laughs> you know, so, so while they might not necessarily, they may or may not, we don't know, necessarily in ill in terms mm. um it's just that lack of yeah. awareness um and you know a throwaway comment um you know from that person might have not necessarily might have been a you know something positive yeah um, it's, it's actually quite negative negatively perceived from from the other side mm -hmm. yeah. i always think it's interesting too because people have different levels of insight mm -hmm. as well into um yeah, their awareness and, you know, they might feel, you might feel like you're aware of things, but I really. Um, so, yeah, I think all you're probably wanting to always challenge that thought as well. Um, yeah. I agree. I think the opportunity is not like to learn and like that lifelong and ongoing kind of learning and sometimes means that we have to, you know, challenge our own thinking and what we might have, um, you know, what we might be uncomfortable with and um, and be prepared to sort of, you know, do that and to see what other people have to offer. And I think especially when we talk about, you know, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, which I think the way we communicate is, is um, enviable, you know, mm -hmm. like really. And I think we have, you know, a lot to learn, like, from that, and I, I would think that speech pathology as a um, as a specialty has a lot to learn around community, you know, communication. Because why wouldn't you want to, yeah, sort of communicate better? I guess.
I don't think there's anyone in the group that communicates better than, than First Nations people. So, mm, yeah. yeah. Feels like a perfect place to leave it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for your time and your insights. That's been really wonderful. Thank, Thank you. Nadia. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.